Welcome to E-Commerce with Coffee, a podcast powered by Amber Engine, where we share e-com secrets for brands over your favorite brew. We start with the caffeine and then leap enthusiastically into behind-the-scenes e-com insights that led to the success of our guests. I'm Nate Svoboda, and I'm about to serve you up the best. Let's get started. Hey, Sean, how you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing, I'm also doing fantastic. Um, so for our listeners, this is Sean Copen. He is, um, well, a, an e-commerce consultant, um, and he's really touched everything in the world uh, of e-commerce from, you know, digital marketing, SEO, content strategy, you name it. So Sean, really would love if you could give us the highlights of, of what got you to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and thanks for having me on your show as well. Uh, for myself, it went down a really interesting rabbit hole to get to e-commerce. It didn't really start out as the the intention. I think with a lot of e-commerce professionals, it's similar. You know, you start off in different professions around digital marketing. I was in sales and content strategy and saw a really tremendous opportunity with a, with a local organization that was trying to grow their e-commerce strategy. And I kind of jumped on that opportunity. Um, became a really big, big part of my life. I really enjoy it. So it kind of happened by accident, but it was a natural fit. And now it's a really growing part of the world and uh, one with a lot of new sighting opportunities to it. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into the, the meat of what we'd really prepared to talk through today, you know, I imagine you're, you've got to be a busy guy. Caffeine's got to play some type of role in your life. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's, it's been that way long before, even in this uh, chair I'm in now, caffeine has played a pretty major role. So you're drinking something going, you're drinking something right now. What do you got? Uh, what do you got going on this morning? Fresh, hot coffee. It, believe it or not, it snowed yesterday here where I'm from. So uh, just nice, something warm in the morning seems to be the right thing. No, absolutely. That's fair enough. Um, well, hey, Sean, we got a lot of stuff to dig into. So I say, let's just dive right into it. Um, right. You know, you've talked about before about transparency, right, in procedures uh, as an element of customer satisfaction. So transparency, of course, it's good branding. It's important for an organization. It means that, you know, you have nothing to hide and the customers know what to expect from their relationship with you. But I'm curious, what are some examples of how brands can easily demonstrate that transparency once they adopt this right mindset? Yeah, I I wanted to focus on that word easily because I don't, I wish it was easy and it usually requires a lot of convincing. Because uh, transparency, a lot of the times, the business can seem like risk. Uh, and I'll bring up some examples. I spent a lot of time with really, you know, aggressively promotional retail brands, and so you can, you know, use a lot of verbiage and terminology to really try to, you know, weasel your way around a sale price or a sale message. And it didn't really feel like you're acting in the interest of the consumer. A lot of the times, you're just trying to kind of protect yourself. Uh, but if you're going to act on the behalf of the consumer and, in that sense, be transparent, you've got to understand that. Things might not sound as attractive or as simple as it would be for a promotion if you were just going to try to paint it with an easy brush. So I think easy is, is definitely difficult, um, but I think people need it now more than ever. I think uh, it has a lot to do with even COVID coming into this play. I think there's a lot of you know risks we saw with availability of product. We should be telling customers they could be running into delays with items coming in. That's the right thing to do. That again could impact your conversion rate. So there's a really interesting piece. The business has to get over that sense of, of risk and adopt the fact that if you have a really customer first strategy and you build up uh, a sense of respect for your brand and the communications you're putting forward to your customers about what to expect from when they buy from you, now that's a bigger long-term win. And hopefully that builds up the kind of trust you want in your consumers. But that's why it's not easy. You got to convince everybody that doing the right thing 
might not look today like it's going to be the best thing for sales. And I, and I think there's ways you can play with that, but you've got to get everybody on board at a leadership level to say that this is the right thing for our consumers. What are some of the biggest challenges, you know, that in times where you've had to help your you know, clients or people you were working with to convince their leadership of the importance here, you know, what are some of the challenges or the, the, um, um, the objections that you come up against most often? Yeah, a lot of it was dealing with compliance. Compliance was a very interesting piece for me. And in an e-commerce world, particularly on sales and marketing your product, what you need to say for the customer and how you say it to the customer can be quite a challenge. And so if we're going to be doing an event and how do you put any of your disclaimers on that event, it can be a challenge. And if you put that in a piece of print marketing or a digital ad, it doesn't read really well. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to the consumer. So the challenges that I've had to work through is finding really good legal support. And I've had that in the past where you can collaborate with them to come up with marketing and messaging that is transparent and easy to understand for a customer. It's not written to protect you. It's written to help them. Uh, and so that was getting allies inside of the legal side and say, well, our job is really to support the consumer and do the best thing for our customer was really what helped me win that battle with a, a business that said, well, we always did it this way. This is how it always sounds. Well, maybe it doesn't always sound right. You know, we've got to do things that our customer is going to, you know, really respect about us. And so, you know, obviously I'm sure there's some level of training, you know, in trying to get the team to adopt this mindset of transparency within the organization. How do you generally recommend these organizations go about getting their team to embody this mindset? Yeah, from the top down, you need to have people at that leadership level that buy in for it for the right reason. You've got to be able to do it. A lot of the times it starts with a test and saying that, hey, the world didn't fall apart by us going down this way. And we got good customer feedback. You can show the value of that. But at a lower level, it's interesting as you talk to people in customer service roles that have to deal with customers every day, they actually really like that transparent approach. They know when they actually have to talk to the customer the customer is going to call them on this stuff or question you about these elements. And so when you empower them with, hey, we're doing this for the right way for the customer and here's how you say it to the customer, they actually really respect that. Uh, and so I found that a large portion of organizations really adopt transparency if you have to deal with a customer every day because they have to deal with the backlash, somebody not buying into what you're selling. Uh, it's at that leadership level. We got to get them to take that chance, test it, make sure that it works well. And you don't go all in on something that's going to be detrimental to your brand and know that you have the backing of the important decision makers on a legal or a marketing side to say that, you know, this is the right thing to do for a customer. So how and when do you think that transparency really became a driving force for customer satisfaction? That's a great question. Um, I won't, I'd like to think that it always mattered. I just think now when it comes to accessibility, people that are inclined to can go very easily a couple of steps further and learn a little bit more about what is actually happening here. It's not hard to discover that truth. I don't have to take a trip down to a store and have a conversation with somebody to figure that out. I've done that enough times myself. I'm a shopper as, as much as I am selling things. If I see something that I don't like or I don't agree with or that I'm confused by, well, I'll go a little bit further. And if it doesn't really pass that smell test, well, I'm going to move on. I'm going to find somebody else that I do trust. So I think that transparency is really about accessibility now. There's so much noise in the market. There's, there's so much demand and desire for you to buy quickly um, that I, I just think it's just easier to have the demands on transparency than maybe it used to be. Though I'd imagine there's always been that, that desire for a consumer to really understand and uh, believe wholeheartedly in the product and the promotion. No, absolutely fair enough. So, you know, shifting gears slightly, right? I mean, when an organization is either starting out in the world of e-commerce or even if they've been in the world of e-commerce and they're just trying to change up their processes and, and continually improve, 
you know, there's so many different technology and tech solutions that brands can make a case for, right? And optimistically, you know, they're going to integrate all of them into their business practices at some point, right? We're thinking, I mean, they've probably already got ERP, uh, a content management system, a CRM system, maybe a product information management system. How should these organizations be prioritizing the solutions now if they want to get the biggest bang for their buck with the new e-commerce landscape? Yeah, there's, there's a good formula for picking the right kind of technology, but it's interesting. The more mature a company is, the more they have legacy programs in place that are sometimes really difficult to move. I've been part of companies that have had you know, multi-year legacy ERP programs that are nearly impossible to move, and there's so much business logic tied in with it that it's, it becomes almost like multi-million dollar change management programs to try to switch out some of these technologies. So when you're thinking about it, uh, I'll try to think a couple steps down the road when you're making a decision about technology is how well it integrates, how well it can scale, how reliable is it, uh, and where are you going to be in the future that you're going to have needs on these systems. And sometimes that doesn't play well with really old legacy programs. Uh, and that starts tying in with a lot of other business units that may or may not be ready to make those changes. So if you're looking at new technologies, you know, there's, there's a formula you can run through about evaluating the right kind of technology at the time, you know, the cost to implement, the cost of the technology, the cost of change, the time to execute, its ease of integrations, uh, its accessibility. Uh, those are all kind of things you can factor into you know, what the real true cost is of getting a new program up and in place. If you're looking at what you can gain out of that and you want to make that case to the business to get a new technology, I've, I've really adopted an approach of trying to be as upfront as possible in explaining the risks uh, as well as the opportunities of making that transition. If we have these old legacy programs, we still have to work with them. Those might be difficult to replace and to migrate. So we want to be able to understand what the limitations are of a program. Um, I like calling it pull shoot. Like, I won't, like if this doesn't go well, how do we get out of this? And, and can we make a, a pivot if need be? We're not going to be signing over the next 10 years for a business to the system. And then what's the, what changes tomorrow by having a program in place and what is the long-term impact of doing that? So you can have costs on one side, opportunity on the other side, you weigh them out in a really transparent way. And then you can make your case about the solutions you need and why it matters right now. And interestingly enough, if you, if you don't do that due diligence in any of your solutions, you know, studies, somebody's going to challenge you about that. That's the job of leadership that you're generally pitching these programs to is to come and challenge you about, you know, why should we do this and why should we do it now? and Why is it worth the cost? I've had to go down that path so many times uh, that it's uh, it, there's a skill to be able to sell internally these types of processes and systems. And I, I think the tip that I'd have for anybody that's in a similar role that really would help them selling, and it doesn't even have to be a program. It could be a new process, it could be hiring new people, whatever that case may be. One of the biggest things you're going to need, particularly if it's a, a very large scale kind of system change, is to find champions at an executive level that really are your allies in those conversations. This used to be the same thing when I was in sales a long time ago. When you're selling something, you got to find a champion in that company that really becomes your ally that's going to help you understand the challenges that maybe you're not aware of. If my program can solve somebody else's problem that I'm not aware of, I want to focus in on that. So if you can build yourself a champion at an executive level that's going to help mentor and coach you through what the right things to do about you know processes and problems you can solve, that's your biggest win. That's the biggest opportunity. And I've had to go through that a lot of times. So you just sit down one-on-one -on -one with somebody who's a part of that inner circle. And they say, well, you know, the president, he's got problems with this. And so if you can find a way to tie in with that and help solve his problem, he's going to be your best friend. Uh, and so that's the biggest suggestion I can make to anybody that's trying to go down this, you know, tech integration path. 
Absolutely. And, and you make up, a, you make a great point in terms of like building advocates, especially at the sea level. Right. And so getting stakeholders on board with these investments is, is getting harder, especially because sometimes the technology is so new, there's not much data, you know, in order to really calculate ROI. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, ROI, that's, that's what we hear from the CFO, from whoever the controller is, the people that are handling the, the pocketbook for the organization. When it's hard to really calculate an ROI, how can brands set proper expectations around these investments in order to more easily get these stakeholders on board that, you know, maybe aren't as willing to become champions? Yeah, I, I think ROI can be tricky because the return, a lot of the times for systems, it's in processes, it's in time. And that stuff has to be estimated. And you have to do your best. If you're putting in a system that's about making things go quicker, and I've actually gone down, let's say, the, you know, information management tools a path. I've gone down that path in the past as well. And that was a hard sell internally. We have people whose jobs today is to help move information around. Why do we need a system to do this stuff? What's the return on spending all this money to integrate and put this stuff into place? Well, it was interesting to, to tie that into opportunity that's not even present yet. So one of the challenges we had was getting more product up onto our platforms more quickly. We had all this product we could sell, but we weren't moving quick enough with it. It's like, well, we could do what we're doing today, but you realize we're only earning this much money. We're only getting this much stuff done. If we, we have a couple of things we can do now, if you want to go faster than that, and you should want to go faster than that, you should want to be more productive. You should want to make more money. We could either hire a ton of people, which I'm sure you're going to see your own risks in, or we could go down the path of technologies. It'll have this cost and take this integration, but it'll get you to the future you want to see. So the ROI on that thing, the dollars and cents on it, almost kind of blends into the background. Like there's a sense of cost of the tool. There's a sense of opportunity with the savings. Uh, there's a sense of, uh, of opportunity with what you can earn from new product sales in that sense. So you can put all that stuff on the table, but I was able to connect some of these major system changes into who do we want to be as a brand? Do we want to be a brand that moves fast and gets things done and does things in this way? This is the most efficient way to do that. The return on that, it might not be that it's, hey, you're going to see $1 million in your pocket you know, next year because of this, the net present value on it might be difficult to calculate at times, but we can tie that back into with the strategic goals of the business. And that goes back down to having champions at the C level is if you have an objective of being a best in class brand or having the biggest product catalog or having the best customer service team, well, these are the processes that go down that path. So the, I would still say that ROI is important and people want to make sure they're getting their, their return for their money. But at some point you got to spend money to make money. And I've been able to work with individuals that can make a good case about who do you want to be and what the processes and programs we need to get down that path and, and have them really buy into the vision that this is a part of, of, of our brand as a whole. Uh, and that might sound easier said than done. There's a lot of challenges within going down that, that space. Uh, but I think you, you're right. The ROI thing can be difficult. At some point, you're making assumptions and somebody's going to call you on the assumptions. Like, where'd you get this number from? Well, my analytics suite says we're making this money. If we add this, we'll make that much money. Well, are you sure? Well, you can't be completely sure. You don't know what the market's going to look like, what your traffic's going to look like, what your conversion's going to look like, what your cost of labor is going to look like. A lot of those things are going to be unknown next year. So all I can do is paint your best possible picture, but they really connect them to the emotions of who do we want to be and what challenges can we overcome by making a decision like this. And you get people really excited about that. And if you can make that case, you have less people barking at you every week to, about what the return is on this piece. They understand it was actually just a necessary step and who we wanted to become as a company. So now, you know, and, and this question, I'll, I'll preface it. This is hard because there's so many different uh, available vendors for a number of different tech solutions. But when the time comes to actually make the decision from, you know, one vendor to another or make your shortlist, 
what are some of the critical things businesses need to be thinking about in order to narrow down their their op, their op, options right they've they've chosen the type of technology they want to implement and now the time is actually coming to to make the decision and they you know worry they may have analysis paralysis yeah that's that's actually interesting and i've been in that position a lot where you've got so many options and you have enough people in the room people can't really decide so what if i was able to really do with those organizations like, hey let me take this away I'm going to come up with the two or three top choices for you. I understand the circumstances. I'm going to do the research. I'm going to talk with all the stakeholders. I'm going to understand everything about their lives. And then I'm going to go do that work. I'm going to narrow it down to the top three with my recommendation of what we should do. But I'm going to present to you what those are. So I'm not going to do this by a committee at the start. We'll have a committee at the end, maybe with the choice. But you can't go into and say, hey, I did 50 different companies here. Which one do you want? Now, nothing's going to happen there. It becomes impossible. So with yourself or a very small select group, you go and you do that research, you come back and present your options there. There's going to be ones with your experience you believe are going to be the best fit. If you can't really, you know, mull between them, there's a couple that are really close. Then it comes down to one, some things that might not come to mind immediately. Yeah, I mentioned full shoot before. That's a really interesting one that I like thinking about is how tied are we with this decision? You know, sometimes things go wrong. Maybe you don't always know for sure what's going to happen, but Am I getting married to the solution forever? Or how hard is it for me to get out of this? Can I extract my data easy enough? Will you export it on my behalf? Can I tra- transition this into something else? Most people you're trying to buy from might not want to help you with that, but that's really important to me is what is my exit strategy of any program I go down? So I know that my next going to be on the line a lot of the times to make it this decision that we're not stuck in this forever. Uh, cost is a really important factor. If they're really close to each other and one's half the price, well, why spend twice as much? I mean, just go with what makes sense right now and put that money into other things that you could be doing with. And then you just have a really good way of categorizing all the, uh, the pluses and minuses. And one thing that I don't think a lot of people take advantage of, and I know I didn't early on, is a lot of companies in the tech space will let you speak to customers that they have. And I did that when I was looking at an email software suite a couple of years ago. And they said, hey, we're working with people that are in your backyard here. They're not competitors to you, but there are brands that you're familiar with and you can go speak with. Here's the contact. You can go speak with them and really ask them some hard questions behind the scenes. You can actually get a really good sense of what the day-to-day reality of being inside of the software is like from somebody that's there. Uh, I think that's that's something that a lot of people might not feel they have the right to ask or, or could go and do, but I'd encourage that. So can I get out of this easy? Is, is the price right? Uh, does it have all the bells and whistles that is important to me? And let me, just like an interview candidate, can I go and speak to some of your references and see what they think? That, that really helps you get down to what your hard choice is. And when you get into a room and, you know, the business like, well, A, B, and C sound pretty similar. Like, how do you go with A? Well, I talk to the people that use it and they love it. I can get out of it really easy if things go wrong and transfer my data. They don't own it. And then I can go and integrate this easy enough into another solution if need be. So we're not married to it. We're not stuck forever. People love it. The probability of this one being a good choice is high. So it's really interesting. You know, I I love the idea of pull shoot, right? Are we able to get out of this if it ends up not working or or we need to pivot at some point? And I realize this comes down to sort of, you know, the the wording of a contract almost. So I'm, I'm, you know, I only ask you to speak to what you, you feel confident in, but what are some of the things to look out for in order that might make you know, oh, well, we have the flexibility to get out of this if something's going wrong. You know, we, uh, especially with like the three to five year strategy becoming less and less of a thing, right? People want to be agile. They want to be able to shift easily. How do you pair the need to set a strategy and know where you're going, but also maintain that agility? Yeah. And there's just asking good pointed questions to these technology providers. 
if I hate you for some reason in a month, what happens? <laughs> and it's like, well, you signed up with us for a year and you paid the money up front, so you stuck with us. Yeah, well, okay, well, that's unfortunate. Now, most technology companies that require a significant amount of onboarding, you're going to have more commitments to it. That's just the nature of their investment in onboarding you to their brand. But uh, yeah, I've seen companies like, hey, here's a th three to five year deal that you could have. Like, well, you know, it, it sounds interesting, but I, I, for me, agility is more important at the end of the day. So you just, you ask the right questions. If things aren't going right, what, how are you going to support me? How do I get out of this? Do you own any of my data? And yes, you need to have somebody at the legal authority that can support you on this. And like I said, I've, I had the opportunity to work with good lawyers. If you don't have this, you may want external counsel or you may wish to just really do a good due diligence there and ask those questions. But it was really important for us as, as large brands with a lot of consumer data to know, do we own that? How hard is it to get it from you? Is there a cost for me getting that to you? What format is it in? And then how easy is it to move that? A lot of data systems will say, well, I'll export in a giant CSV for you. And then you can take that and migrate that. And so that ownership of data is really critical. What are the, what are the terms of a, of a contract and what are the exit clauses? Some of these, because you mentioned that hey, the long-term deals aren't as important. Technology companies know that. They know that they've got to work hard for your business and people don't want to sign long deals. Some are willing to even do three to six month trials and say, we'll run this for this period of time before we sign into anything for a year long. Not everybody's up for that, but you push for it. These people want your business. And I've, I've not been surprised. I, I think I knew what was going to happen. When I pushed on, like, no, I want this. People say, okay, well, we'll go find a way to make it happen. Well, maybe if you're a really small company, they're not going to do that for you. Maybe it just happens with bigger companies. But if you don't, if they don't give you what you want, well, there's another 10 companies out there doing a very similar thing that you can go to. So push for it, get the deal that you want, pay what you want and make sure it has the flexibility that supports your business. No, absolutely. And I appreciate you adding the context on that. So, you know, consumer expectations today, they require almost instant reply, right? And 24 seven access to the brands across multiple channels. And consumers, they also want more direct access with brands shopping through big retailers. Now, it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg question. Is this a response to tech uh, like social media or is the tech a response to consumers changing their priorities and expectations? Yeah, I really liked this question. I've come across some similar questions in the past and it's not a new question. Uh, it's like, oh man, customers seem to be demanding more every day. Like, where is this coming from? Are they just that way or did we did we create this monster the thing is they've always customers have always been that way they just didn't realize that brands were able to meet that expectation if i could get my product sooner why wouldn't i in a lot of cases not every case but if you just if i'm buying toilet paper online well it's probably because i have a need for it i'm going to want that sooner there's not i don't really have a lot of backup strategies if this doesn't come on time uh so not good ones at least <laughs> yeah not nothing that we want to talk about and uh, so when we think about uh, this piece, the customers always had this uh, affinity for a better service and a better experience. It's always been there. They'll always be wowed by it. The only difference is the brands haven't always had it or known that they could do it. Uh, a long time ago, I'd, I'd written an article. I call it the moments in between. It was really funny. Uh, and I don't want to go down too far of a rabbit hole, but I thought it was a really interesting look at it. And it came out of going to uh, change rooms because my, my wife works in fashion retail. And I used to always think when I would go to a change room, why are some of these so terrible? And they're, they're, they're cold and it's uncomfortable and they're, they're not designed in any way. If you hang your stuff, so you're dropping your clothes on the floor and it's dirty. And I'm thinking, this is the point where I got to connect to your product. It's in this moment that I'm the closest to making a decision about whether I'm going to buy from you or not. 
and you invest in no money in that experience right now. And then you can go next door where they have this change room where it's well lit and it's warm and there's benches. And if you've got somebody who's with you, there's some comfortable place out there for them to sit with. And they've, they've known that there's a moment between the experience. Like a brand might think all I'm selling is a product and then I have to have somebody at the checkout that's going to take your money. Well, that's not it. There's a moment between that where I've actually got to connect to that product in that change room. And so that's, if all change rooms are terrible, customers are like, well, I guess that's life. But then as soon as one person comes in and say, hey, I've got heated change rooms and they're gorgeous. Oh, wow. And then all of a sudden this shift changes. Well, I'm going to go to that one. And all the brands are going to try to catch up to that piece. Um, and so that's what I think about when we talk about customer experiences. Would somebody want delivery same day? Well, we didn't think that was even possible that long ago, but of course somebody would take it. But now that somebody stepped up and said, I can make that into an advantage, I'm not just selling toilet paper and then it's going to show up someday magically. I can get you that faster than anybody else. Now it's a competitive advantage. Now consumer behavior changes and thinks, well, I can get it sooner. That's important to me. I'm going to put my money where somebody can get deliver on that experience. So I, it's a kind of a chicken and egg, but I believe that customers are always going to gravitate to the better experiences that matter to them. It's up to the brands to really be innovative and think of ways they can go out there and get that and make a better change room. And so I, there's so many moments in between that brands can have that will really just wow customers because nobody else is looking at them. There might not seem like there's that many anymore, but there's still a lot of terrible change rooms out there. So there's a lot of people that have not thought about how to optimize those other experience points. No, and, I, and honestly, that's a great example. I, I forget where I read it recently, but um, you know, your performance is really only going to be as, as strong as the weakest part of your customer experience, right? So even if we translate this to e-com, you, have, you can have a great website, you can have great product pages, but if you have you know, really not, a not transparent pro- uh, process for you know, the delivery and the shipping information, or if people try to get people on the phone with your customer service reps and it's just all automated and it takes forever and it's frustrating doesn't really matter how good the rest of your tool chain is because it defaults to the weakest part of the process. Um, and sounds, that's kind of like what you're talking about. So it's really and, interesting. Uh, yeah. And chat online was a big thing that we had done recently with a, a company I was with that really echoes the same sentiment. Like I was going around before implementing and just testing other brands and doing chat. Like there's a lot of them. We have to wait five minutes. So if I want to buy now and there's other people that are selling the same product and I need to know about it. Well, I want now service. Like I'm on your website now. Why am I waiting that long for these different pieces. And so I started going down this path of a chat program. And this goes back to ROI and solutions. So it ties in beautifully with some of the earlier questions. Like I wanted, I pitched one of the most expensive platforms on the market and we were using one that was dirt cheap at the time. And so it's like the biggest battle you could think of, like we're already doing it today and it's kind of working. So why would we spend all this much more money on this other wow solution? Well, let me paint a picture for you in that case. We want to be able to provide a service where there's an old gas station we used to have. It's still around. It's called Domo. Have you ever heard of Jump to the Pump? It was That was their slogan. It was Jump to the Pump. And that's because they had a full service gas station where they would jump out and be the fastest to serve you. I want a Jump to the Pump experience on chat. I want like sub 30 seconds. I want people to get in there, help people that are urgently needed. And I want to be able to do that now. So we need the team that can support it. We've been able to champion one call resolution on our call centers for phones. I want one call resolution on chat. I want people to be able to come in and not have to be transferred all over the place. People have to be able to be empowered and knowledgeable enough to serve that customer now. I want conversations where the customer wants to talk. And this is where the solutions matter. Right now, our current chat tool, you can only chat online. What if I want to chat on Facebook, on WhatsApp, or on any other platform? Well, can we centralize that in one tool? Yes. So we only have to train one team and get them to use one system in one place. They can handle every conversation. 
that's the power of having a better tool. I want to be able to have a tool that represents our business. And let's think if you're a plumber and you're selling emergency plumbing, we do around the clock plumbing. Well, if I can't reach you around the clock, that doesn't make any sense then. I want a tool that's gonna to support customers whenever they want to be served. So we either need staffing or technology to do that. I want bots and programs that are smart, intuitive, that people don't get frustrated at, that help solve their problems when we're not available. And then we'll follow up immediately. So those, there's moments in between this technology process and say, if we believe that chat is competitive advantage and we can show the ROI because we can see what chats lead to sales, wow, we should be investing in a best in class solution that does way more than anybody else can. And resoundingly people signed up and bought that. I was like, all right, what a good pitch, we got it. Uh, but that's just how you, you tie it all together with a, a great customer experience, a great technology. And all of a sudden it, it came back to, we wanna be the best. Well, you've got to do this to do that. Otherwise you don't call yourself that anymore. Uh, and you, you tied in with something emotional with the business and they went down that path. It was, it's a good program. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, Sean, because I only have a couple more things that, that I think we have time to ask, and I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So there's a lot of different marketplaces, channels, whatever you want to call them for people to engage with um, in e-com, right? But they have different cost structures associated with them. There's, there's pros and cons to going with like an Amazon or a Walmart marketplace or focusing on Target, you know, Wayfair, I, the list could keep going. So in today's environment, how should these brands that are you know, new or relatively new to e-commerce, um, how should they assess the revenue opportunities for one marketplace or channel versus another? Yeah, that's a question that probably could be its entire episode around. And I, and I wish I had more information. I've not spent a ton of time dealing directly with other marketplaces, though I'd helped implement one uh, with a company that I was with. And it was interesting because there's a lot of risk going down this path. And just to touch on a few of the points, your margin erodes a lot of the way if you got to start paying other fees on these other spaces in order to stand out on marketplaces you're going to have to promote because you've got other competitors on there that are generally promoting their products so you've got to think about your your promotional strategy so i've lost margin on fees i'm probably going to lose margin on promotions that are aggressive so that i gain that traffic and you have to invest a good amount of time making sure you have a really strong quality write-up photography and a backlinking strategy to more information so you look like a a real responsible brand and not some just fly by night drop shipper. Uh, so there's a big investment in going down that path. And so if people are considering that uh, you look at your margin models, you got to understand what you're willing to sacrifice in terms of, of revenue and profitability and know what that line is and don't dump your whole catalog on there at once. <laughs> Try with a, a handful of SKUs, see if it really does what you want it to. And sometimes that can draw linking back to your website where you can gain some authority from and, and some traffic from you might not have get, even had before to see if you want to go down that path. I, I'm just, I'm cautious about it because I know that you could have a great product and within a matter of months, somebody else is going to see if you're doing well, rip that off and put up their own version. Like I, I think of, you know, going on Wayfair and I used to work for a furniture company and you can go on there and find three or four sofas look almost exactly the same as what we're selling like that easily. And they have a, a matching tool where you can show a picture and it'll find you other ones that look like it. Like, man, the, the choice is so broad and it's, it's out there. How do you get a good sustainable profit model that's going to fit with your business? So those are the things I really want to cautious any, uh, caution anybody about going down the marketplace path is to understand what your margin uh, opportunities are, what you can play with, um, test it with a couple of things and see, and be careful. They don't get the shot in the arm as we'd say, like just throw it on there. We need the sales and well, who cares about profitability. You're, you're in business to make money and to profit. 
so you can't sacrifice that at the end of the day. So that's what I would say, one model versus the other one. Once again, think about your contracts, think about ease of setup, what it takes to be best in class uh, and making sure that you've got the right margin in that place. And then just test and evaluate, put it up on a couple of different places, see what you get back uh, and don't marry yourself into something that's not driving profit. You got to find other opportunities. You can be putting that margin money into advertising strategies, potentially to drive back to your website and maybe have a better opportunity to convert. So a lot, there's a lot inside of that. It could be a very long conversation, but those are the points that I'd bring up first for people to consider before, you know, jumping both feet into the marketplace. Yeah. One of the, one of the big things that I hear and I, I take away from that is, you know, don't put everything up on the marketplace give you the consumers a reason to go back to your website. Right. And to, for, to go back to a channel that you actually own and, and can show them more stuff. So now in terms of, or in the context of all the clients that you've worked with, all the, all the organizations that you've helped, what are some of the biggest or, or most commonly missed opportunities that they have when they're developing their e-commerce strategy? And I know there's a lot of facets that go into it, but looking for the most commonly missed op- opportunities. I already know what the answer is because it was the one that I stumbled on real hard uh, when, when my first big e-com gig. Uh, I, when I jumped in, I was so excited. I filled a whole wall of sticky notes of all the experience points could be better every step from landing page to checkout and the thank you page. But then the sticky notes ended on the thank you. And I was thinking to myself, well, why is that the end? That's not the end of the journey. Like this, all this work we do as a business is to try to get somebody to buy. And so I went to my director of marketing and said, how much money do we spend on, on marketing or advertising with people who've bought from us and in customer support and follow-up? So probably less than a percent. Like we're, our entire advertising strategy is on getting people through the door, but practically nothing on retention. So your, your sticky notes don't end on checkout. If after that point, there's a whole opportunity and a real good automation out there to help with this around follow-ups. Uh, how do you like the product? Rate our product. Here's other products. How can we do this better? Warranty support, product care, information about how to love the product and use it in different ways. That's the hugest missed opportunity that I see with brands as you work all this to get people to connect. The loyalty, there's some argument whether loyalty still matters or not. I still believe great customer experiences will resonate with people. And sometimes the last experience points you're going to have with your product is after they've transacted in e-commerce. What are those things afterwards? That is the biggest gap that I see everybody missing. You spend all this money and time on getting people to push by. Get those people, love them after the fact, and they'll come back. Uh, and they'll tell other people about how great it was. So, And it's, it's cheap. That part of it is actually way cheaper than the uh, stuff on the front of the checkout button. So... Think about those strategies. There's so many opportunities out there and technologies to help you do better at that. One of the one of the key lessons in business, right? It's keeper. It's cheaper to keep a customer than to get a new one. And I, and it's the oldest lesson that I could think of that I got in sales, uh, and it's the one that's still most often missed and uh, for shame. Right. Absolutely. Well, you know, Sean, I, I would love if you could give a, give our listeners an idea of, you know, where can they connect with you if they want to reach out and, uh, and g- gain more of your limitless insights in the worlds of yeah. e-com. Yeah. The, the best places be through LinkedIn. You can go and connect with me on LinkedIn as well. I do have a website. You can go to you know, seancopen.com uh, and I can be connected with on there and you can learn a little bit more about myself, uh, but those are the best ch- uh, channels to, to jump in and have a conversation always up for, uh, some caffeine and a, a quick chat any day of the week. Beautiful. Well, Sean, really genuinely appreciate your time with us today. Um, I've personally learned a lot. It's been great speaking with you and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. Absolutely. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Sean. That's it for this episode of e-commerce with coffee powered by Amber engine. 
If you haven't gotten your fix yet, be sure to get more e-commerce brand secrets on our website at amberengine.com. And don't forget to subscribe for more episodes.